Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yolki Driesen, here with Jen Williams. Hi. Zach Beecham. Hello. We're going to start in Germany, where something predictable and something surprising happened, at the same time that something reassuring and something jarring happened. Here's the predictable part. I'm happy, together with you, that we have achieved the strategic aims of our electoral campaign. We are the strongest party with the CDU and CSU. We have received the uh, responsibility to create a government, and no government can be created without us. So that was German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was just re-elected for the fourth time. She is somebody standing up for Western values around the world and doing things American presidents used to do, which we'll talk about. So that was the part that was predictable. And here's the jarring part. Correct. Islam as a cultural and religious entity has no place in Germany. So that was a man named Alexander Goland from a party called the Alternative for Germany, which is a very far-right German political party known for charming things like misogyny, anti-Muslim bias, xenophobia, anti-immigrant feeling. They are now the first far-right party to enter the German parliament in decades and the third largest party in the parliament, full stop. Their results were the parts that were surprising because they did better than people thought and the parts that are jarring because of what they believe in. And so there's a lot to unpack. But let's start with Merkel. Let's start with kind of who she is and really why she matters because she is in this fascinating position of being basically what an American president used to be, which means she is also now in pretty much open combat with our actual American president. So it's important to define what you mean when you say what an American president used to be. Because the term leader of the free world is a Cold War term, right? It's just one that's ported over. Used to be leader of the anti-communist alliance. Now what it means— (laughs) Doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Yeah, there isn't so much communism anymore. Now it means something more like the leader of what we call the international order or the Western liberal order or something along those lines, which basically means coordinating policy among democracies that's designed to— keep trade lanes open, promote the spread of other democracies, keep the global economy running, allow for free migration of people for the most part, right? That That is what people mean. That's the status quo, or it was the status quo before Trump. And that's where the phrase comes from. Like, typically, American presidents try to further all of these aims. But this one, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, and also championing human rights, you know, liberal values in terms of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, those kind of things as well. Um, And I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, again, it used to be the American president who's referred to as the leader of the free world. And Angela Merkel has essentially taken up that mantle um, sort of kind of reluctantly, just in a way by default, um, because we have essentially pulled back from that role. Um, under President Trump. But but it's weird to call it default, right? Because German leaders typically have not been at the forefront, at least since World War II, of the Western alliance, even West Germans. Also not during World War II. (laughs) And I think that there's something really interesting in what you just said, because she is not a West German. Right. Angela Merkel herself grew up in East Germany. And when you read about her, about her upbringing, her worldview, it was shaped basically by growing up in a repressive country, a country where food was scarce. She is someone who doesn't give off the kind of raging, visible ambition many politicians of both genders do. You get a sense more of like duty, that she feels like she owes this to her country. She's a scientist by training. And when you read stuff about her, she is always underappreciated. She always finds male mentors in what had traditionally in Germany been a very patriarchal political system and has risen rapidly because of it. You know, Jen, you said something interesting that I'd like to unpack a little bit. 
when you talk about values and about refugees in particular, Germany took in, under her leadership, 900,000, roughly, refugees from places like Syria. This was hugely controversial, you know, arguably heard it politically. It was, to me, and I think probably to all of us, it was a moral good to welcome these people into her country at that risk. And when we're talking about a comparison to the United States, we've taken in 45,000, 15,000. We're talking about creeping Sharia when we are a country four times as big as Germany, roughly, and we've taken in a teeny fraction of what she took in. And Zach, you know, to your point from before about Germany not taking this role by default, we do not, 60 years ago, would not have thought, hey, Germany, the place that migrants want to go. Very much not. Uh, It's fascinating because it's a country that has eschewed the traditional trappings of political power uh, internationally, specifically building up a massive military. Germany has pursued a demilitarized policy to an extent unheard of anywhere else in the world. Even Japan has a, Japan actually has quite an advanced military, even though it has pacifism enshrined in the constitution. Germany's military is relatively small for historical reasons, but it also illustrates that the country isn't one that is seeking some kind of global hegemony in the way that the United States currently wields it and why the U.S. has typically, quote-unquote, led this international order. It's that Germany has this absolutely massive economy and plays a pivotal role in shaping European institutions. So it has ended up, through this very fast and and rapid economic development since World War II, becoming a global power. And under Merkel, it's it's acting like one. Right. And um, I think just to kind of get a sense of the 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 migrant kind of refugee crisis, the numbers are just really staggering. So since 2015, um, between August and September 2015 is when Merkel and and her party uh, started granting protection to hundreds of thousands of refugees. So since 2015, there have been 1.5 million refugees that have entered Germany. Um, just in 2015, it was 890,000. Um, it's going down dramatically. So 2016 was 280,000, and then, then 2017 is only 60,900. Um, but in November 2015 alone, so just one month alone, just the city of Berlin, 10,000 refugees came in. One month. So, you know, you can imagine that, you know, German citizens might see that and go, whoa, what's happening? Even, you know, regardless of where these people came from, you know, and we can get into the whole, you know, issue about them being from, you know, Muslim-majority countries and, and you know— the, the issue of Islamophobia and, and terrorism, things like that. But even if they came from, you know, wherever, um, if they came from next door, that's a whole lot of people. That's a huge influx of people in a very short amount of time. So it's understandable that there was some some concern, you know, among, among G- Germans and, you know, worried about, especially in terms of like the social programs that these refugees would be getting. You know, there was this kind of perception among some in Germany that, these people were just coming here knowing that they would get a cushy life, right? That they would get access to these, you know, these social services that Germany has and that those, you know, social services would be used on people who weren't Germans instead of, you know, the people who still in some parts of the German economy, especially in the East and the former communist area, um, not doing quite as well as some other parts of Germany. So it was like, well, why aren't you, you know, we hear that debate here in the U.S. too, but like, why aren't we spending this money here at home you know, on our own people instead of all these other people who are others. Right. And this is a country, it's worth remembering, that is the wealthiest country in Europe. It has the strongest economy in Europe. It's sort of the engine politically and economically around which Europe flows. So when there are questions like the future of the EU, the future of NATO, Germany is kind of central to that. There's an arrogance, right, when we talk about America and we think of there's the Obama doctrine, the Bush doctrine. There's this belief that American leaders by default have this worldview that shapes not just the U.S., but the role of their country. We don't talk about the Merkel doctrine, 
But Zach, I think you hit it exactly right at the outset. It is sort of a commitment to the liberal order. It's a commitment to liberal values. And it's a willingness at times to stand up to other countries, not necessarily the way that we would have done in the past, but there was this amazing moment in which standing next to Vladimir Putin, now picture all aspects of what I'm about to say and how impossible they are to imagine today. And she said to Vladimir Putin, your treatment of gays and lesbians and transgender and every other marginalized community in Chechnya, which your country basically oversees, is unacceptable. And your willingness to imprison NGO workers is unacceptable. And your willingness to mistreat your own people is unacceptable. Standing next to Vladimir Putin, imagine Donald Trump standing next to Vladimir Putin saying any of that, but that's what she is willing to do. And she does it. She's not yelling. She's not screaming. She's not someone who is an American-style politician necessarily who's trying to like get media attention, but there's backbone and there's steel. I think there are two really interesting points that you raise there. And the first is is Merkel's relationship with Putin. Um, they have a really close, not in terms of like emotional relationship, but uh, they talk about once a week. Um, Putin, so Angela Merkel speaks Russian um, fluently. Sometimes they talk in German because Putin's German is better than Angela Merkel's Russian. But um, Putin has praised Merkel for being the only world leader he can speak to in his mother tongue. Um, they have a really close relationship in terms of, you know, a lot of similar economic interests. They've tried to kind of rebuild ties. There was talk, you know. Well, and yet Germany has been at the forefront of some sanctions efforts. Right. No, absolutely. When it comes to Russia after Crimea. Absolutely. And that's um, that's kind of part of why, you know, there was kind of a change there when, when uh, Russia seized Crimea and invaded Ukraine. A lot of Germans were still reluctant to kind of go after Russia on that. Um, but Merkel essentially you know, when it happened, realized that she needed to do something. But a lot of people talk about how Merkel is the only person who really has influence over Putin in terms of international leaders and can actually talk to him. And at one point, I think it was after um, after the, the Ukraine invasion, I believe, uh, she wouldn't take his call. And the Russians, like, freaked out and were, like, sending all these, like, messages through ambassadors, like, what's going on? What can we do? Um, there was even, uh, they had a, a, a meetup and Putin what, looked- What can we do? Maybe don't invade other countries and <laughs> that, steal their that territory. That would be a helpful start. <laughs> but it's really interesting. The other thing that, that you raised um, that I think is really fascinating about Merkel is that she's not emotional. She's not, you know, visibly, you know, demonstrative. She's not visibly passionate. She's very kind of stoic, very calm, very analytical. Um, and she has a long history, like you said, of kind of having power and and assuming power over these men who have tried to kind of keep her down over and over again because they, they see her as unassuming. She's, you know, quiet. She's in the background doing the work. Um, she's not flashy. And there's a really amazing, amazing, um, quote from uh, John Kornblum, who's a former U.S. ambassador to Germany. And this was in a, a 2014 New Yorker profile of, of Angela Merkel. And he said, if you cross her, you end up dead. There's nothing cushy about her. There's a whole list of alpha males who thought they would get her out of the way. And they're all in other walks of life now. And it was just this really interesting quote that really shows how unassuming she is and how she really understands how to deal with like vain, kind of brash, you know, boastful politicians, and she's overcome them over and over again. So it makes sense that she would be able to kind of handle Vladimir Putin in a way that a lot of people can't. When you're talking about somebody who's cool, analytical, not terribly emotional, it sounds a lot like Barack Obama. I mean, for better or for worse, that was the way the Obama years were, were sort of lived and characterized, and they had their relationship because of it. When you're talking about cool, calm, analytical, non-emotional, you are not talking about the Donald Trump months. And they have not gotten along well. Let's hear 
what he says about Angela Merkel. So I used to be a fan of Merkel. I used to think she was terrific, a big leader, a great leader. I think what she did to Germany is a disgrace, is a disgrace. So that was Donald Trump during the campaign. Since then, he had the gloriously awkward moment when they were sitting in the Oval Office um, waiting for a handshake. She put out her hand and said, Mr. President, let's shake hands. He refused to. He sat there just kind of petulantly. He later said he couldn't hear it, but come on, every world leader shakes hands in that office, and, and he wouldn't. And then the more awkward press conference where he made this bizarre joke to her about, hey, we were both wiretapped by Barack Obama, and she just kind of stood there stone-faced. To be clear, she was wiretapped by Barack Obama, right. and he was not. And she clearly does not find being wiretapped by Barack Obama to have been a funny thing. Um, but let's also hear now what Angela Merkel has said about the U.S. under Donald Trump. And the in denen wir uns auf andere völlig verlassen konnten. Wir sind ein Stück vorbei. That was Angela Merkel saying, the times when we could fully rely on others are to some extent over. And it's a very narrow line she's treading because she doesn't explicitly say, we can't rely on the U.S. anymore. But that's basically what she is implying. And it was universally read as her saying, the U.S. under Donald Trump is not the kind of ally Germany used to have. It's not the kind of ally that Germany could believe always had its back and would always be lined up with it in the future, which is remarkable because the U.S. and Germany have relied on each other since World War II. Right. I mean, when I was talking earlier about German demilitarization, the reason that they're capable of maintaining this policy is because there's a massive U.S. military presence there. Relying on the United States is, is Germany's national policy. That is literally at the foundation of its security. So the idea that she would say that, well, while it might sound muted to an American audience, to a German audience, that's revolutionary. That's saying everything we've assumed about how the international system should work and how to protect ourselves might be wrong. But I think it's interesting, though, is, you know, we hear that clip of, of Trump kind of railing against Merkel, you know, and he was referring to when he says, you know, what Merkel did to her country, he's specifically referring to the immigration and, and allowing in, you know, tens of thousands of of migrants. Um, but what's fascinating to me is that after their meeting and and since then, he has said, you know, he was surprised. He said, you know, it turns out I actually we had really good rapport. Like, I, I got along great with Merkel. And he was like, surprising of all people. I got along. I think I get along best with Merkel. And I think, again, that speaks to her ability to really kind of hang back, to sit and be quiet and listen. And if there's anything that Trump likes, it's to hear himself speak. Um, so, you know, she's she's known for kind of sitting back and being quiet. There was one uh, quote that said that, you know, she listens for for 70 percent and speaks for 30 percent and just, you know, sits back and, and analyzes and kind of takes in what's going on and is able to really kind of understand in an analytical way, you know, what makes people tick and especially especially brash kind of men. And I think that's fascinating that even though they have, you know, these very concrete policy differences and different visions, you know, of the international order, they still ended up, you know, him, he still ended up saying, you know, we had a great relationship. Now, one thing I'm worried about in this conversation, and I think more generally in the way that uh, liberals in the U.S. have started to talk about Merkel is seeing her as like a resistance icon, as like an anti-Trump figure, and somebody who is who should uncritically be celebrated as like holding up America's responsibilities while Trump is failing. Part one, she's not a resistance icon. She's a politician leading a country. A very pragmatic one, too. Uh, and part two, her track record on a lot of issues, is not great. For a while, she refused to let 
marriage equality come to a vote and in Germany. She voted against it. And it voted did. against it when it finally did. And is is actually personally responsible to some degree for the Eurozone crisis uh, earlier this decade because Germany, under her rule, exercised its power over the EU central bank to limit the printing of, of new euros, which was vital to or would have helped countries like Greece, which were in serious economic problems, but would have somewhat hurt Germany's economy. So she put the interests, the moderate economic interests of her own country over countries that were facing economic collapse. And that is, I think, inexcusable and should be a reminder that this is somebody who isn't just about the liberal project, but also about German interests and a conservative view of German interests, narrowly speaking. That's such a great point, especially on economics, because she hammered Greece, as you said, and she also hammered Italy. You know, her country is the most powerful economically, the richest. They have a huge, very high saving rate. German, the cliche holds actually true. Germans save a lot of money. They don't overspend. They're not American in that particular way. And when it came to set terms for the economic collapse of Greece and the economic collapse of Italy, Germany took an extraordinarily hard line in pushing austerity, which causes human misery, literal human misery. And old people saw their pensions cut. Schools were cut. And you could see from her perspective that was justified. Why should her taxpayers bail out profligate, lazy Greeks and Italians? You can also see from the point of view of much of the rest of Europe, why are you bullying the weak? And I think that's exactly right. But Jen, to go back for a second uh, to Trump, there are the small moments of pure pettiness, though, that remind you that maybe even if she's good at reading him or, or trying to win him over, she hasn't. Uh, Sarah Wildman had a really good piece up on, on Vox.com um, about how Donald Trump, right after the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, won a referendum that basically turned him into a dictator, called Erdogan immediately. Then Angela Merkel wins her fourth term in office, a liberal icon, rightly or wrongly, but someone who has done a lot of good, and he doesn't call her. And it's, in the scheme of things, is that going to change the world? No. But in terms of how he sees her, as compared to how he sees dictators, I think it actually says quite a lot. I get the sense that Trump would have been much happier had the far-right opposition won this election. Uh, they came in third, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, but much like how Trump was not so subtly pulling for Marine Le Pen and the far-right Front National in France's election earlier this year, my guess is that he wanted the alternatives for Germany or alternative for Deutschland to win the election. And But let's like dive into that, actually. I mean, had they won the election, or had they done better, frankly— what would they have done? I mean, I, I think the name itself is so anodyne, but what are the alternatives so, for Germany that they want? So I think it's actually really interesting that you that you brought up their name. So it actually is a direct, it was started as kind of a direct response to Merkel and to her policies in the Eurozone crisis. So the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, um, was started as an, an anti kind of, you know, Euro zone crisis bailout kind of party. It was started by, you know, wonky economists, um, and so to be clear, when we were just criticizing Merkel for being too tough, they wanted her to be tougher. Yeah, right. Um, so, so I don't speak German um, <laughs> to quote Gaga, but I can if you like. Ow! Um, but <laughs> alternative lows. A great obscure reference. All right, Gaga is not obscure. Back to uh, the alternative for Deutschland, far right, anti-Islam party. Um, so when it started out, like I said, it was you know it was during the the European sovereign debt crisis. And when Merkel was describing her policies, she um, 
She was essentially using this this German word, alternativlos, um, which means without an alternative. And it echoed um, an old slogan of Margaret Thatcher's that there is no alternative, essentially saying like, you know, there's no choice. We have to do this, you know, for the good of, of the EU, for the good of Germany. And so this this party was started that was alternative for Germany. Like, no, there is an alternative and we are it. So that's really actually where the name came from. But what's interesting is that as the kind of Eurozone crisis um, ebbed and the kind of rhetoric that was making them, you know, popular at the time didn't seem to be working, factions within the party, um, you know, these kind of more nativist, nationalist, anti-immigration, anti-Islam elements within the party got stronger and kind of capitalized on, you know, the refugee crisis specifically around 2015. There may be people in the same way that none of us really speak particularly good German who also don't speak kind of wonk. So let's just, I think, briefly talk about what is the Eurozone crisis? I mean, when we're talking about how this thing blew up, like why it led to the rise of a new party, it's worth understanding what the hell it was. So after the 2008 financial crash and the ensuing Great Recession, uh, European economies were particularly in trouble. Uh, And part of the reason why is that they had a shared currency. So one thing that countries do when their economies weaken uh, is print more money. The U.S. did this, and and it allows you to distribute more money out to people. You get spending going, and it allows you to increase exports because your currency gets cheaper when you print more money. Inflation is actually good in a crisis like that. Uh, With a shared currency, you can't – each country can't print the amount of money that they want to print. And – That means that Germany, which was doing relatively well and didn't want to print that much money because inflation would be damaging for the economy, ended up setting, given that it was the strongest economy in the Eurozone, set the tone for the response. And so the result is countries lacked control over uh, policy or over monetary policy, and places like Greece and Italy really got screwed as a result. Plus, there were lots of banking failures. Ireland's economy disappeared uh, more or less, because it was heavily dependent on the banking system, which was failing internationally. Like there are lots of causes. I'm just describing one of them, the one that's most salient when we're talking about Germany. And so, when we're talking, Jen, about the party, so so they sort of began as this like almost economic protest party, which seems kind of innocent, but then they took this really weird, dark turn. Right, and actually, the founder of the party quit the party uh, in, I believe, 2015, um, because you know, and he, he was deriding that. The, the rise of this kind of xenophobic, Islamophobic, you know, nationalist um, rise within his own party. And, um, you know, Frau Petri became uh, basically the face of the AFD. Um, she's a 42-year-old woman labeled by her enemies as Adolfina, uh, a reference, obviously, to Adolf Hitler. She's actually really interesting. She also has a PhD in chemistry. She also grew up in East Germany, um, which I find fascinating that two of, like, the most prominent politicians in Germany are female PhD holding, you know, in chemistry women. I, I just think that's fascinating um, and an and odd coincidence. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but they're very similar in terms of how they, they grew up, but they are, you know, they couldn't be more different in terms of their policies. So, you know, um, Frauke Petri has essentially led this, you know, super anti-Islam, this super anti-immigrant kind of um, sentiment and really capitalized on that and gotten a lot of support from people who had, you know, otherwise supported, you know, Merkel and, and other political parties. Well, it's it's important to note here that uh, the German far right, as AFD became, uh, was following a path that had been blazed by a bunch of other far right parties, modern European far right parties, right. really starting with the Front National in France uh, way back several decades ago. 
where they built their support around anti-immigrant demagoguing, but not outright racial appeals. They would talk about European culture and European values and the threat posed by multiculturalism. And so that way, they avoided the post-World War II stigma on talking about race. In fact, most European governments don't recognize race as a category at all as a result of the Nazis, especially Germany. Uh, but they, uh, they, they capitalized on an anti-immigrant sentiment nonetheless, which didn't go away when the Nazis were defeated. And that was weaker in Germany, or so we thought, than in other places because of the historical legacy, because Germans have spent the past 70 years rightfully beating themselves up about what they did and what they were responsible for. To see a far-right party do this well in Germany on the basis of anti-minority scapegoating, not incidentally, study after study finds that they aren't capitalizing on anger about the economy. That's why they shifted to this anti-immigrant demagoguery in the first place. It really is about fear of immigrants and the refugee crisis. And it's interesting, Zach, the, the word you used, I think, was exactly right, immune. I mean, in America, I think for a long time, we thought American values are what would keep out people who are demagogues, people who are xenophobes, immigrants, racists. In Germany, there's a whole legal and educational structure actually literally designed to do that. So it is illegal under German law. Much hate speech is actually illegal. Many forms of Holocaust denialism are illegal. Germans in their educational system spend many, many, many years kind of flogging themselves very rightfully for their role in World War II. So it isn't in the abstract that we thought they were immune. We thought that they built a system that protect themselves, and we saw abruptly that if, in fact, it didn't. AFD got 12.6% of the vote, which may seem small to Americans, but this isn't a presidential election. That translates into dozens and dozens of seats in Germany's parliament. Like, that is a big win for a party that had previously been extraordinarily marginal. Yeah, and they, they according to analysis of, of the, the final, you know, exit polls, they pulled uh, approximately 1 million voters from Angela Merkel's party, who had previously voted for her party. That's a huge amount of people in Germany. I mean, that's a million people who thought that, you know, Angela Merkel's refugee policies, you know, they all vote for different reasons. But in large part, Angela Merkel's refugee policies were, you know, were harming Germany and harming their own interests and thought that this like really hardcore anti-migrant stance, you know, was really what they wanted. And yeah, they've picked up 94 seats um, in German parliament now. So, I mean, they have a, you know, an interesting and they have they have a real kind of voice in in German government now, which is interesting. Interesting. The, disturbing. The uh, jarring. We could just keep going to the thesaurus. But the voice they have and the voice they use and what they say, it's two tracks, and they're both really interesting. So the one is the sharply, as we heard from the clip before, anti-Muslim tract. And they have run ads showing women in bikinis that literally say, we want bikinis, not burqas. They've said German, i.e. white women, should have more children. They've said that German culture is under assault by Islam, which is not compatible with it. So that's the one strain. And we've seen that in other countries. The other, which is slightly more unique to Germany, is they are saying, enough with the Holocaust shame. Right. We've hit ourselves for it. Stop. We don't need to do it anymore. And in some cases, more specifically, they've said German soldiers, and this directly parallels in some ways what we hear in the South in the debates over Confederate monuments, uh, Confederate kind of imagery, they've said many millions of German soldiers fought bravely and we started honoring them. And, and in Germany, again, like that kind of talk had been cl close to illegal, if not actually illegal. And I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that they have the part that's the anti-Muslim part that's unfortunately, Zach, as you were saying, it's becoming very common. And then they have this other very unique to German sense of 
we have atoned enough for the Holocaust. Well, like unique and not unique, right? Like you saw Front National politicians essentially trying to whitewash French blame from the Vichy government uh, for its participation in the Holocaust. You see in Hungary far-right parties celebrating famous anti-Semites, right? Like the European far-right in general has this view that self-flagellation should be over, that we should take pride in our history and not feel bad about all of the murdering of Jews that we did in the past. So I think think you guys are both absolutely right. And I think it's actually interesting. I don't think the two things are separate, right? I I think the the kind of Holocaust, not maybe straight out denial, but uh, trying to kind of move past it and and kind of get over that, you know, the national mourning, the national shame. Yeah, the the heritage, not hate approach to the Holocaust. Yeah. So I think that's intimately linked with the kind of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment. I mean, when you look at, at the the hate crimes that have occurred against migrants in Germany, and there are many, many. Um, just in uh, in 2015, violence against foreigners went up 40 percent just in 2015 alone, according to the German interior minister. Um, and in one attack, it was neo-Nazis who beat and trampled a 13-year-old Tunisian girl, which is just horrifying. So, you know, the kind of that kind of neo-Nazi throwback identity is is intimately linked with the anti-migrant with the pro white Christian German identity. I don't think that they're separate. I think they they go hand in hand. And, and I think that in some ways is the importance of Merkel, right? And the, and the challenge she faces, which is she is standing up for both the Western values and liberal values outside of her country. She's pro-NATO. She's not willing to allow Russia, you know, to randomly invade other countries. She's pro the treatment of the LGBT community in other countries. So she has that role she has taken on of sort of the defender of those values outside of her country. And then, Jen, to your point, she also has that role inside her country of trying to, like, beat back anti-Muslim bias, beat back anti-refugee bias. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of stuff to take on for one leader, even one who is clearly, clearly as skilled as she is, both politically and just in running a government. I, I yeah. Just- and, and this election is also a reminder that earlier this year, it looked like the far-right ru- the far-right wave in Europe might have been cresting. They underperformed significantly in France's election. They underperformed in the Austrian presidential election at the end of last year. They underperformed in the Dutch election, the various different far-right candidates and parties. And then in Germany, they they beat significantly where observers expected them to be, and they did so by capitalizing on the parts of Merkel's policy that American liberals and international observers celebrate. And it is worth bearing in mind that this this threat from this kind of party, the concern about the rise of a new kind of far right that's dedicated to tearing down the order that people like Merkel and Obama stood for, that's not over. And there's no cause for being complacent. I think there's, and I agree, I think there's another kind of more insidious effect of the AFD and of this kind of anti-migrant, anti-Muslim sentiment. And that's that it um, influences the center-right parties like Angela Merkel's to drift farther to the right in order to, you know, be able to maintain their, you know, electoral majority. So we talk about, you know, Merkel being pro-immigrant and and standing up for Muslim rights and values, but she has definitely responded and her party has responded um, in very concrete ways to the rise of the AFD and tried to kind of temper her immigration policy. So 
uh, the government announced a, a new integration law that required new refugees settling in Germany to learn German and take classes on the country's history and culture. It controlled where they were allowed to live. Um, she cut a deal with Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in 2016 to help stem the flow of refugees into Europe. Um, and it's even more, you know, that's all that's all well and good. Um, but it's even like on the Islam kind of issue in Germany. So Merkel's interior minister even called for a ban on burqas in a wide range of public contexts. Um, and Merkel said that, you know, while she opposed the blanket ban, she did say, quote, a fully covered woman has little chance of integrating in Germany. So she has kind of in some ways drifted over to the right a bit. And I think that's another kind of insidious effect of the rise of the far right. At my company, people tend to wear jeans, t-shirts, occasionally flip-flops, which make those of us who don't want to wear jeans, flip-flops, feel slightly out of place. It also means that when we get to wear a suit, we want that suit to look good. And there's a great place to get that kind of suit. It's Indochino. Because what they do is they make it easy and affordable to get a perfectly tailored suit at a really incredible price. And you can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics. You can personalize it the way you want it. You could have double vents, one vent, thin lapel, wide lapel. So that means you can get the suit you want, whether it's for work, a wedding, any kind of special occasion. And they've suited up not just a few people, but hundreds of thousands of men. And they're the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. So here's how it works. You either go to a showroom or you shop online at Indochino.com. You pick the fabric. You pick the customization, so lapels, pleats, jacket linings number of buttons, whether you want the buttons open, not open. You submit your measurements, you place the order, boom, comes in a few weeks. So this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com if you enter Worldly at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. And shipping's free. That's Indochino.com, promo code Worldly, for any premium suit for $379 plus free shipping. It is an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. It's an incredible deal for a suit that will make you look good for when you need to dress up. Thanks for listening to Worldly. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a listen, because one thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't necessarily care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories, it's well-produced, and it's fun to listen to. So find Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Life is supposed to be a journey of discovery. When you look for the big stuff, the meaningful stuff, love, purpose, answers to the questions of who are we, why are we here, and not questions of where the hell are my keys, my wallet, my iPhone. This is especially hard if, hypothetically speaking, you have toddlers in your house who find those things fun to hide. But fortunately, there's a way to find them. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device. Now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. And with it, you never have to worry about losing those kind of things again. The Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You could put a Tracker Pixel on whatever it is you tend to lose. In my case, your keys. In other cases, a wallet. Maybe your cat. And it's really small enough you could put it absolutely anywhere. When you misplace an item that has a Tracker Pixel attached, or again, hypothetically, someone else in your family misplaces it for you, use your smartphone, and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. Even as powerful LED lights so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone? Press the button on your tracker pixel and your phone rings even if it's on silent. And you can even locate your item if it's miles away. 
because every Tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. Go to the tracker.com slash worldly to get 20% off any order. And that's the tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R dot com slash worldly for 20% off. The tracker.com slash worldly. Find your stuff. For elsewhere, we're going to shift to another place where it is both a win and a loss. When we were planning for this yesterday, Jen got so hot takey that her fingers were literally scorching. And this is why. You may be interested to know that a few minutes ago, a royal decree has been issued in Saudi Arabia, giving women the right to drive. So that was the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the UN announcing what for them is a major shift, which seems like it shouldn't be a major shift in the 21st century, but was. You know, Jen, we were talking about this yesterday. It is both a win, clearly, but it is also not a sign that Saudi Arabia is suddenly a beacon of progressive values. Right. So I, I'm I'm kind of of two minds about this. Um, on the one hand, I think it's it's absolutely a big, important step for women um, and for the Saudi economy both. And I think it's really, really important to, you know, give credit to the, the Saudi women who have fought and protested and have been arrested and, you know, subjected to lashings and punishments to try to get this ban overturned. So there are incredibly brave, powerful women in Saudi who have fought for years to get this overturned, and they deserve all the credit in the world for fighting and standing up for these rights. By that same token, though, it's not enough, right? There are still uh, major restrictions on women. Women are essentially treated as children. They are not full legal uh, adults, essentially. There's a, a system, it's the, the male guardianship system, um, where they essentially have to be escorted in most places um, by a male guardian. So we're talking mostly, usually it's a husband or a father. Uh, in some cases where there isn't a husband or father, it's you know a brother or a son. Um, but you have to get permission from your male guardian to get a passport and leave the country, um, to do all sorts of things. Recently, the Saudi government has relaxed some of the restrictions on the male guardianship system. So, you know, it, and it sounds like, you know, these are great reforms, but now like women are allowed to access certain healthcare services without having their male guardian present, um, which, you know, is yay. I mean, <laughs> they should be because of course. Um, and there are still kind of a ton of, of issues where women are still at the mercy of having, if your guardian is, you know, more lenient, then you are allowed to do more things. If they're not, then you are essentially, I saw one quote from a Saudi woman that said, you know, we live in a box that is drawn by men. Imagine this next part said with a plummy British accent, because it will sound more authoritative. The BBC had a glorious list of things that women cannot do under the guardianship laws. And I just wanted to read it quickly uh, and then kick it over, because I know Zach, you had a lot on this to say also, but these were some of the things. Applying for passports, traveling abroad, getting married, opening a bank account, starting businesses, getting elective surgery, and my personal favorite, leaving prison. So even if you've been arrested, you won't get out until some guy comes and, and takes you out it's of prison. It's actually even worse than that. It's also leaving shelters. So when women who are abused go to shelters, they can't be released until the male guardian, who most times is the abuser, comes and picks them up. That's a real big problem. This country is bad and it should feel bad. I don't mean the country writ large, I mean the government. The Saudi government wants to celebrate itself for this, and it wants to make this about its own decisions, right? And, and it's not. As Jen said at, at the outset, this is about Saudi women who suffered and pushed really hard to try to get their government 
to make a reform it didn't want to make. It's worth bearing in mind here that when we talk about the Saudi government, we're really talking about two different things that coexist uneasily. One of them is the monarchy, which is relatively secular and nominally in charge of the country. And the other one is the theocratic establishment that runs the legal codes. Uh, And the clerics who run that have a great deal of power and are exceptionally conservative. This decision is not one that they would have made voluntarily, and it's not, and I suspect will spark a great deal of conflict between the monarchy and uh, the the religious establishment. So the religious establishment actually came out in support of this, um, essentially because Saudi controls who are the prominent religious establishment. Sorry, figures. when you say Saudi controls, you mean the monarchy? Yeah, sorry, the the Saudi government, the the monarchy controls who are the the official government, you know, prominent clerics. So the on Wednesday, Saudi's highest clerical council, the Council of, of Senior Scholars, um, endo- endorsed the the royal decree lifting the ban um, in a statement, and they said that King Salman had issued the, the decree to, quote, serve the best interests of the country and the people. Um, they, you know, agreed that the scholars of Islamic law have decided to let, you know, quote, the shepherd lead his flock, depending on the benefits of the situation. Um, and they said that all previous fatwas concerning women driving were based on the benefits and disadvantages and and that, you know, this is essentially, well, it's up to the king who is our, you know, our shepherd to, to make this decision. So the, they have official buy-in and the Saudi government made sure to promote that very heavily and say, look, we got the sign-off. The problem is that there are, you know, probably hundreds of of clerics who are not necessarily part of the official establishment, but who are highly influential, um, who have, you know, big followings even on Twitter. I think the top Twitter handles in Saudi Arabia are all clerics. So it's those, um, especially some of the more, you know, extremist ones, um, the, you know, more conservative ones who are going to be potentially, you know, rabble-rousing. But for the most part, the Saudi government has made it incredibly clear that they are not to protest this. And one of the clerics had a particularly odd and intimate reason for saying women should not be allowed to drive. Right. So in 2013, a conservative Saudi cleric uh, defended the driving ban, arguing that women who drive risk damaging their ovaries and giving birth to children with medical problems. So this is what I mean when I mean this government is bad and it should feel bad, right? Like this is a society in which the quote-unquote secular monarchy, I, I do believe that they see themselves privately, they wouldn't say this publicly, as being a relatively enlightened and secular monarchy, uh, they tolerate people like this. And they do so on the part of a hundreds of years old political compromise with religious authorities to sustain their own power. An alliance, right? I mean, I would push back kind of sharply at, at the idea of a secular monarchy. I mean, they they publicly portray themselves as the guardians of Islam in part because Mecca and Medina are both in Saudi Arabia. They make showings of not drinking. I mean, unlike some other Gulf Arabs, that said, there are a thousand members of the royal family, many of whom you do see uh, in Dubai or the UAE. That that, that was my point. Drinking, yes. whoring, but <laughs> but like the public image they try especially to present, whoring. especially they, whoring, they like that. Uh, and the harlotry. I just want to go 19th century Victorian England. But they, publicly, I think they portray themselves as the opposite of secular. Also, I just don't want to call prostitutes whores. No, no, I, again, clear. yeah, I, I agree. Like, there's a public-private gap here. The way that the Saudi monarchy behaves in private is very different from its public image. The other interesting thing to me about all this is, as with so much in the world, it's the money. I mean, there is no question that for Saudi Arabia— they see this as something that could be an economic boom for two reasons. One, that there are studies looking at how much money Saudi Arabia loses as an economy because women don't fully work. We had an article earlier this year that was looking 
It drew in part from a book called Women and Girls Rising, which looked at the rates of uh, female participation in economies. And it estimated, basically, that the Saudi GDP would go up between $80 billion and $100 billion a year if women worked. But there's another part of this. The current crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's an interesting man named Mohammed bin Salman, universally referred to as MBS, is 31. And he is trying to do a lot of things at the margins to try to get his, com- his country ready for a post-oil future, the biggest of which is this weirdly named Saudi Arabia 2030, which is pouring money into universities, amusement parks, tourism, it's trying to diversify out, out of oil. And what he's heard back, in some cases very publicly, was you will not make this work unless expats want to live in your country, i.e. expats are not going to come if women are treated, if we're being generous, as second-class citizens. And so mixed into this whole stew of are they religious, are they secular, is it fully a step forward, fully a step kind of quasi-forward, there's money pushing this, a lot of money pushing this. I also actually just want to point out that the the main kind of justification for why women shouldn't drive, uh, besides that one cleric who's a little batty, um, was more that that it would, it, not that it was inherently bad f- themselves for driving. It's, I mean, women were allowed under Islam to, you know, ride on camels. And Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife, led a, an army on camelback. Um, but it was more that it would expose them to men who would then potentially hurt them. So there were concerns, you know, if a woman's out driving by herself and the car breaks down and a man stops to to help her, she could be taken advantage of. Um, and it, so it was more, you know, instead of teaching your men not to take advantage of women, it was, well, we'll just keep them at home and protect them. So that was kind of the justification. And I, I think, and maybe we'll, we'll close here, Saudi Arabia is in this bizarre and interesting and for them kind of historic position. They, for a long time, have had a close relationship with the U.S., but it's had its ups and its downs. Donald Trump has allied himself and his government with the Saudis to a really unprecedented degree. He has said that they are allies in the war on terror, which is debatable given that they have funded the war on terror officially, on the other officially side. for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, he has said that when it comes to Iran, they are allies of his in the fight against the Iranians. He is about to have to recertify the Iran deal or allow it to collapse. The Saudis, a diplomat from that country, made this clear to me yesterday. They want to see that deal collapse. They do not want it recertified. And so they have, on the one hand, better ties to Washington than ever before. On the other ties, uh, sorry, better ties to Washington than ever before. On the other, they're trying to liberalize their economy. On the other, they're trying to balance modernity and progressivism with religion and their interpretation of religion. It's, again, a hard balance. And as we talk about with Germany, it's coming basically to one person who has more influence than anybody else, and he is 31 years old. So we will see a lot about what this young person can do and not do in the years ahead. We will stop there. As always, thank you for listening. I want to thank our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard. As always, if you like what you hear, we hope you did. Come find us, subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, anywhere else you can find podcasts. Vox has a lot of other great podcasts. You should listen to them as long and as frequently as you listen to us. We will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in. We wanted to take this moment to insert an absolutely shameless and, frankly, very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company, and it's known for its standout technology and its high-fidelity advertising. The platform is what supports our growth here at Vox, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. And for us, that's national security, it's foreign policy, it's America's place in the world. But for listeners who haven't already, 
check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's the rest of Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories to find in the world today, SB Nation, which tells the story behind and beyond the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, what to disrupt next, Racked, which is a great site about fashion, and my personal non-Vox.com favorite, Eater, which is a great site about food, especially if you're traveling and want to know where to go and what to eat in a city you're going to. And so what unites all of these sites and all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality. We believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audience. 